Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Family Matters. I'm your host, Jim Minnery, and I'm with a group called Alaska Family Council, Alaska Family Action. Uh, it's two names because we have two separate legal organizations. Uh, but you can go to akfamily.org if you aren't familiar with us. Most of you probably are as podcast or radio listeners. Um, we have a very, uh, well, actually, before I um, talk about our guest, I want to talk about um, our sponsor. So without Rieger Physical Therapy, we wouldn't be able to do this show. So we want to thank them so much. Um, they are at 510 West Tudor Road uh, in unit number 10. Uh, Rieger Physical Therapy. You can reach Cortland over there, who's the owner, and they have a great team that will take care of all your needs um, that you may have regarding physical ailments. They have massage therapy, manual therapy, of course, physical therapy, uh, but you can get a hold of them at 677 677-9112. And again, that's Rieger Physical Therapy. So God bless uh, the efforts of Cortland and his team for being a part of this uh, this show. Today we have um, Stephen Aiden. He is the uh, general counsel and chief legal officer for Americans United for Life. And what a wonderful uh, organization this is. Steve Stephen is a highly experienced litigator. Uh, he's appeared in court against Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry dozens of times, um, has upheld or secured court victories um, that uh, across the country, really. Uh, you, you just can't um, go anywhere uh, from, from D.C. to Hawaii and everywhere in between where Stephen hasn't been an amazing part of the pro-life movement. So if you haven't been to aul.org, I can't encourage you enough. It's just a, a wonderful site. A lot of people won't take the time. Um, I just don't have the time uh, to go through all of the different things that are happening uh, on the legal front uh, and cultural front as well. Um, so they have uh, um, their own podcast, Life, Liberty, and Law. They, of course, send out this year, it was the 15th anniversary edition of Defending Life, which is the uh, updated um, annually pro-life playbook for every state. Uh, Alaska is ranked 32. So we're kind of right dead there. I wouldn't say in the middle. We're below um, the middle, uh, 50th. Uh, you know, in fact, I should read that here. I have the pro-life book um, or the uh, Defending Life 2020 book open here. And I, I do want to read a couple things as we go into, before we go into our interview uh, with um, with Stephen. But uh, the 10 best, I'll give you the 10, uh, the 10 best and worst states for life uh, in 2020. The most protective lives are Louisiana, Arkansas, Arizona, Oklahoma, Kansas, Indiana, Mississippi, Mississippi, Missouri, Alabama, and South Dakota. Praise God for those states. Uh, more kids are being saved in those states than any other states. Um, and uh, great things are happening. So we can learn a lot from our friends in each of those states. Here's the least protective states. We're not going to... Uh, Alaska, as I mentioned, is 32nd in terms of uh, the 32nd uh, best, or you could say the 32nd worst. 
Uh, we're number 32 on the list, and we have a long ways to go. But here are the least protective states, Vermont, New Jersey, Oregon, California, Hawaii, New York, Montana, Washington, New Mexico, and New Hampshire. Um, and so, interestingly, the entire West Coast, <laughs> including uh, Washington, Montana, Hawaii, California, Oregon, they're all on there. And that, that so shows you why a lot of folks talk about the left coast as opposed to the, the West Coast. But, um, yeah, we'll have a great conversation with Stephen today about all sorts of different things, including our uh, the way that we elect judges uh, here in the state of Alaska, uh, the medically necessary law that was overturned, written, uh, that opinion written by Justice Susan Carney, a name you'll want to remember because she'll be on the ballot in November. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out between now and November in terms of uh, people being educated about the judiciary uh, candidates. That's always been a challenge. We always get inundated with folks wondering what to do about that. Uh, but let me just read you a, a few things um, from uh, Defending Life 2020, because as I mentioned, I doubt uh, very many people um, get this. Uh, I don't even read the whole thing, but I try to, to use it as a, uh, as a handy resource when, we, when we're doing different efforts throughout the state uh, to protect life because they're so good. But here's what they say about Alaska. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a section for each state as well as uh, draft or sample model legislation. It's just a phenomenal resource. But here's what it says about Alaska. Alaska maintains few legal protection, protections for women seeking abortion. The Alaska Supreme Court has determined that the state constitution provides a broader right to abortion than that interpreted in the U.S. Constitution and, using this reasoning, struck down the state's parental notice law. That's the one that we passed. That was ballot measure two in 2010. Moreover, it maintains no laws regulating emerging biotechnologies. So a lot of different things uh, that can be said about um, Alaska uh, in terms of progress that we can make. But I would say the number one thing is to, for folks to be educated about the judicial system because they have stamped out not only the parental notification law, but they've also uh, recently, as we, as we said, uh, overturned the state's law that was passed by the legislature and signed into law by then Governor Sean Parnell that basically said the, the, uh, that Alaskans shouldn't have to pay for uh, elective abortions. And as we've seen uh, and we'll discuss with Stephen, uh, abortion has been uh, signaled and saluted, as it were, as an essential service especially during COVID-19, when in the state of Alaska and Indiana, there's, there's many other states that have said or called out the abortion industry to say, listen, this is uh, um, a, a, a trying time for the country and elective procedures need to, uh, to stop and so that we can save valuable equipment and resources for those who are in uh, dire straits regarding COVID-19. And uh, interestingly, tellingly, uh, the abortion industry, primarily pr Planned Parenthood, has basically given their finger to the uh, the um, the very clear mandates 
by state governments, including Governor Dunleavy, that said that elective abortions should cease during this time frame. They have proudly said uh, that uh, that's not happening. Um, Unfortunately, we have courts that would uphold their ability to defy that law. And so we'd like to think, um, because we started a statewide petition um, and uh, called attention to Governor Dunleavy's um, uh, um, clarification about that, that that was part of educating the public. And you never know. I mean, like uh, we'll discuss with Stephen Aiden, uh, you never know what is uh, making a, a woman change her mind in terms of choosing lives. So we all have to do our part, whether it's policy, uh, talking to our neighbor, talking to our friend, um, posting things on Facebook, praying, uh, you know, working with right to life groups, um, you know, contacting your legislators. There's so many different ways that we can be involved, and, and we're all called to do that. So stick around, folks. We'll be right back again with Stephen Aiden, uh, Chief Counsel for Americans United for Life. So God bless you. We'll see you here on the flip side of this break right after this. Welcome back, Jim Minnery, with another edition of Family Matters. Gorgeous spring day here in Alaska. Hope you're able to get out a little bit during this hunker down mode as we slowly open up the economy and our world. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very blessed to have Stephen Aiden, who's the Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel of Americans United for Life. Stephen, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. It's my, my pleasure, Jim. Thank you. Well, we uh, have, like I mentioned earlier, so much to cover. There's just a, a, a ton of things going on, as always, in this arena. It is our, uh, you know, primary objective as an organization. We've always said, you know, we deal with the four primary issues of sanctity of life and religious liberty, parental rights, right of conscience issues, and uh, sanctity of marriage. But uh, the life issue truly is is the one that is the make or break for all of us because uh, of what's going on in our society right now and um, and the progress that's being made. Obviously, there's not there's some things in some states that aren't very good that are happening, but uh, there's good progress. We'll talk about some of that. But before we dive into anything, I always like to start off uh, with kind of a personal journey where, where you've um, come and how you've arrived at the place you are right now where God has you um, leading uh, the legal efforts of this organization. So give us a, an idea of who Stephen Aiden is and, and how you got to where you're at right now. Well, Jim, thank you. That's very kind of you. I always say that I am in the pro-life movement because of the women in my life. Um, my late mother, who uh, was a, uh, worked for the local pregnancy center, uh, helping moms out in troubled circumstances. My two sisters, who used to man the barricades in front of the local abortion center. And uh, my uh, sweet wife, Molly, who was a state director for Right to Life, uh, as well as a committed uh, board member for a pregnancy center for many years. Uh, she's at home now uh, raising our six kids, but uh, she's been the biggest inspiration to me. Um, that is the long and short of it. I've been in the conservative legal world for quite a while after leaving private practice. I actually practiced law in Honolulu and uh, came to the D.C. area uh, back in 2000. I'm sorry, back in time flies. 
back in 1998 to work for uh, John Whitehead at the Rutherford Institute, one of the earliest uh, pioneers of religious religious liberty uh, and uh, conservative ideals. He's still out there doing his good work, uh, but I worked for them. I worked for Christian League Society, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a privilege and a thrill, great people there. And I've been yeah. aboard uh, Americans, Americans United for Life for uh, two and a half years now under the leadership of Catherine Glenn Foster, who's also an alumna of uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, a good friend, and uh, an amazing, incredible, energetic leader. Uh, so we're doing all that we can to uh, save lives, to get good policy passed in uh, all, all 50 states, to oppose bad policy, such as uh, assisted suicide laws, uh, these new um, broad expansions of abortion that we call Roe versus Wade bills, like New York and Virginia have unfortunately passed, uh, and moving cases up through the Supreme Court, uh, such as the one that uh, the court just heard recently involving Louisiana's regulation of abortion, uh, hoping to get uh, good, solid uh, case law from the Supreme Court that upholds the right of states to regulate abortion and ultimately to overturn Roe versus Wade and return that issue to the states and to the people where it belongs. So that's me in, in a nutshell. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's amazing to think of how uh, vibrant and robust the pro-life movement is. I always tell people that when AUL and, uh, and ADF, Last Defending Freedom and others, are on the other side of the court, um, ACLU and Planned Parenthood, you know, they're, they're, um, they're put in their place in many ways because for so long uh, there just really wasn't, uh, you know, a healthy uh, pushback in terms of legal, um, you know, the, the legal battle. It was, it was kind of mm-hmm. almost assumed uh, that the Planned Parenthood pro-abortion side was going to always take the day and it's so much not the case now um one of the things that we do here uh occasionally is you know policy is downstream of culture we have to change the culture which we of course believe needs to happen um and is happening in many ways um but i also believe that uh that culture often is impacted and is a reflection of law um, and so it works both ways, but you have any thoughts on that in terms of, you know, people, and we can get into a little bit later oh, yeah. in terms of some some of what the courts have done to overthrow some of these great things that have happened mm-hmm. or overturn, but what's your take on the culture versus law issue? Well, Jim, I think we're winning. Thank the Lord. Um, a couple of examples. Back in 1973, when the Supreme Court decided Roe versus Wade, uh, Harry Blackman, the justice who wrote Roe, spent a couple of summers researching in uh, the Mayo Clinic's library and uh, thought he had a handle on what uh, pregnancy uh, was, what abortion was. But uh, And he wrote that abominable decision, but that was just before the advent of ultrasound technology. Uh, so after that, nobody could pretend that it was just a blob of tissue in the womb. Uh, we all know now uh, the stages of embryonic development, the fact that it is a human life from conception forward. Uh, there's just no denying that. It's a matter of basic biology. And so they have been, uh, the abortion industry has been 
uh, they've had the uh, the rougher, harder argument, thankfully, for many, many years, the anti-science argument, uh, the argument from ignorance. Um, it's as if uh, you looked up in the sky one night and said, uh, I can count the stars, just give me a little bit of help and a uh, a magnifying or a telescope uh, and you don't comprehend that uh, the universe includes literally billions of them. Um, that is what happened with the uh, life issue. Uh, we came from a place where Roe versus Wade was based on ignorance. It was based on hiding uh, the basic facts of, uh, of uh, pregnancy and uh, human development and obfuscating uh, those things so that the law could uh, come in and uh, and uh, declare that there was a fundamental right that existed nowhere, of course, in the Constitution. It was made up. It was, as the Supreme Court said, an emanation from the penumbra of the Bill of Rights. In other words, it was uh, coming out of the shadows that were cast by the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. You can't make oh. this stuff up. And then wow. by the time you get to the uh, – the exciting thing is by the time you get to uh, the 90s and the Supreme Court's decision in 92 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey allowing states to regulate abortion like other medical procedures, um, you have uh, – on the sitcom Friends, you have Jen uh, showing the ultrasound of her baby in the womb on primetime television. You have GE uh, advertising its uh, – it's a uh, four-dimensional four ultrasound uh, showing the beautiful baby in the womb. They've lost the battle. Now they've pivoted to, well, we know it's a human. We know it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's a fetus. But the truth is that the women's right, uh, the woman's right uh, prevails over that. And they insist that because being forced, quote-unquote, to carry a child and uh, to to raise a child, although of course they're not. Adoption is available, but uh, all of that uh, ruins a woman's life, pro- prohibits her from participating in the workforce, competing economically with men, and as a result, it's my life against the babies, and that's how they set it up. But it's all false. It's ridiculous. Um, so, fi- one final fact, by the way, uh, they say. Uh, and have said for years that abortion is necessary to enable women to compete in the workforce with men. If you look at the two graphs since 1992, one is the abortion rate in America. Since 1992, the abortion rate in America has dropped by 40%. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of human lives saved. On the other hand, the other graph to look at is the female workforce participation rate, uh, which has steadily climbed. So obviously, as more and more women are participating in the workplace, they need abortion less and less. Uh, The two just don't match up. The truth is that abortion uh, was never necessary for women to be successful, and that's... uh, we are privileged to host a conference called Women Speak, uh, bringing in you know successful women in medicine, arts, uh, science, uh, law, uh, to explain that women do not need abortion to succeed in life. Uh, so that's where we are as a culture. I think we are winning. Um, 
and the uh, the precipitous drop in the abortion rate, or should I say, the uh, wonderful rise in babies saved uh, in the last 20 years is just the best uh, evidence of that. Well, yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, you know, it makes you think of you know one of the primary reasons the Gutmacher Institute uh, a few years ago, kind of the, the research arm of Planned Parenthood. Uh, listed some of the the top reasons why um, women get abortion, and of course, um, you know, 98 or 99 percent of them are elective reasons. And we'll talk about that here a little bit later in terms of how that plays out legally. But um, you know, that kind of conference is uh, or information is so critical for people who are making these decisions to think that uh, it's not going to, yeah, it's going to make it more of a challenge maybe or different kind of challenge than they would have normally uh, to advance uh, in their vocation, but it certainly isn't going to prevent them. Um, and that kind of information needs to be out more. Uh, there's no doubt that that's a cultural side of it, but is uh, it's, again, just more facts that are coming out. Folks, we're going to be right back uh, with uh, our conversation here with Stephen Adden at uh, Americans United for Life. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey guys, welcome back. Stephen Aiden with uh, Americans United United for Life, a phenomenal organization. He's the chief legal officer and general counsel and our guest today on family matters. So much uh, is uh, writing on our ability to not only pass good law, but change culture. And they go back and forth. One of the things I tell folks is when we had the uh, parental notification law in Alaska, we passed that back in 2010 um, because the legislature was sitting on their hands and uh, not doing what they uh, said they were going to do. And the courts had said, well, no, we're, we, 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 when, when they overturned the parental consent law, they said, uh, but I think it was 30 different times in the the, the Supreme Court justice's opinion that she said, uh, but this doesn't involve notification. This doesn't involve notification. Okay, so we took them at their word and passed the notification law through an initiative process. Um, and, of course, that was overturned by the, the court here in Alaska. But at the time that it was in place and it was the law of the land, a very short period of time, um, the number of abortions for teenagers um, dropped. I think it was almost 30%. Um, and so law does matter. Um, I remember talking to someone uh, about the fact that she had a, an abortion in Texas, and when they ended Medicaid funding for abortion, she said, uh, you know, there wasn't a, a stamp of approval from the government, so it made me think differently about it, and she brought that baby to term. Um, and so law does matter. The, the the reality right now, though, for a lot of folks, and we've seen this in Alaska and it's happened in other places where we get people saying, OK, you've passed these laws. The, 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 the two biggest ones in the state of Alaska are the parental notification law and um, the medically necessary abortion law where the, the state basically – um, through the legislature and signed by the governor, said here are the the number of medical actual medical conditions that um, allow for Medicaid to be paid for abortions, and these are medically necessary as defined by 
OBGYN specialists that we brought in, neonatologists from across the country, um, and it was signed into law. And uh, of course, that was overturned by our courts now, and so Alaskans through Medicaid have to pay for um, have to pay for elective abortions through Medicaid. Uh, and there, there's a possible solution that we'll talk about here in the final segment. But what's your take on that, Stephen? I mean, you know, I, I got uh, my share of emails and feedback from our constituents saying, you guys just keep passing these laws and the courts just keep overturning them. Why are we banging our head against the wall? What, what can we do? What's the answer to that? Well, Jim, uh, you recall that uh, I was privileged to be one of the lawyers uh, on uh, the second case along with your excellent Attorney General, Kevin Clarkson. Uh, he's under a lot of fire right now, and he deserves your listeners' support. I hope they give it to him. Good man. Um, and it was frustrating uh, because, as you said, we thought that the Supreme Court of the state had clearly signaled in the first case that they would accept parental notice. But in the second, of course, uh, they uh, revealed their true purpose, which is to uphold and expand abortion uh, at any cost. Um, it's a typical bait and switch from uh, the abortion industry. They'll say one thing and then do another, and they've done it all over the country. In terms of your uh, your courts, uh, your 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 judicial system, unfortunately, uh, I believe that you labor under one of these judicial selection commission systems, whereby essentially lawyers uh, get to decide who can be pre-selected to be a judge, and then the uh, the governor, even if the governor is conservative, has to choose from a slate of candidates that lawyers who run liberal, yes, as a profession, uh, have hand-picked. Uh, that's frustrating, and that uh, needs to end. Uh, I think that the judiciary must be responsive to, um, not directly responsive to political uh wins uh that would be you know a majoritarian problem but they need to be responsive uh to the people that elected them through the democratic process so for example in many states uh where judges are uh, nominated by uh the governor and then confirmed by the legislature it's a simple, straightforward process that uh, lets you know different folks from across the uh, judicial spectrum contribute, have their voice, uh, and then uh, the judges tend to be more reflective of the culture of the state, and that's a very good thing. Um, but it's frustrating. I think people need to let their uh, voices be heard uh, and uh, you know keep uh, working on it. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll say the same thing to our friends in Alaska that I tell our friends in New York or our friends in California when they call and say, what can we do? Uh, we have a, a pro-abortion regime uh, that uh, we just can't make any headway against. And our response is, well, whatever it is you're doing, keep doing it because the abortion rate keeps dropping. Year by year, more and more lives are being saved. That's a result of great work being done by pregnancy resource centers uh, sidewalk counselors, um, lawmakers, uh, people who are uh, advocates, uh, public educators, um, all working together. Uh, we have uh, saved millions of lives over the last uh, 20 or 30 years and will continue to do so. 
Well, that's a fascinating uh, angle. My uh, member, Father Frank Pavone, who heads up Priest for Life, um, you know, it, it talked about, you know, of course we fight for victory uh, in the pro-life movement, just like the other side does. They they fight for victory for abortion up to and now, of course, in, in after the pregnancy uh, or, or the, the delivery, as we've seen in Virginia and in other places. But um, but Father Pavone says we fight for victory. They fight for victory. The difference is we fight from victory. And so what happened at Calvary resolved everything. So we have to have that mindset, and we do as believers, to be able to say what was resolved at Calvary um, matters then and it matters today in terms of every life that's been snuffed out, um, in terms of all of the people who have been um, you know, harmed by the abortion industry. Uh, God and Christ have resolved all of that. And so we have to have that mindset going into every policy discussion, every uh, cultural encounter, that um, we can't have that kind of desperation oftentimes that we see on the abort, pro-abortion side, which is, and they are they are going ap- apoplectic to ensure that they have the ability to shake their fist at God and say, we're going to have this at all costs. We have to have this comfort level that we have to keep pressing and like Mother Teresa said, leave the results to God um, and be faithful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but yeah. one of the things that, you know, that's, we have that coming up actually in terms of the election. We have a, a Supreme Court justice, um, Susan Carney, who is, uh, who actually wrote the opinion recently to overturn, uh, the state's law about medically necessary abortions and Medicaid. And she's, she's up for retention. It's every 10 years. And uh, so we'll have a, a very good opportunity here in the state of Alaska to educate folks on the difference um, in uh, judicial philosophies between the two sides. And there are two sides. I mean, that's one of the things that we've seen in the past is that uh, even a Supreme Court, retired Supreme Court justice, uh, Carpinetti, has, uh, has established a group called Justice not politics that opposes any group that is trying to non-retain or unelect a judge, and their their take usually is just that well they're just a, they're they're solid people in terms of how they participate in the community. They're exceptionally talented uh, in terms of their education and legal background. Uh, they're highly respected, at least in terms of some of the court employees and other lawyers and all that stuff. And and we always say. You know what? That's I don't think that's the reason why Alaskans were given the opportunity to vote on these judges. Um, we get to vote just like we do uh, with other legislator uh, for other bodies in in the uh, executive and, ju- and legislative branches because we disagree with what they do when they're there. Um, it's not to say that they're not talented. I mean, or, or qualified even. I mean, I would say that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is certainly qualified to sit on the Supreme Court, but I, I would vote for her to get off of the court in a heartbeat if I had the opportunity. Um, and that's kind of what Alaskans need to understand is that, yeah, we're not discussing this person's merits in terms of being able to to make rulings and have the, the mental faculties. We just disagree with how they're ruling. And that's one of the things that happened with this, uh, with this medically necessary case uh, in terms of 
Laura Einstein. I remember that name because she was supposed to be the smartest one in the room. She was the chief legal counsel at the time for Planned Parenthood. I think maybe not just uh, of the Northwest. She could have been for the entire place. You might know that. But I want to discuss that with you in terms of what Planned Parenthood and, and the pro-abortion side has to say about elective versus medically necessary abortions and, and how that plays out. Um, in in the courts and how it plays out in society. Um, uh, when we get back, we're going to take another uh, short break here, folks, and come back with our final um, episode uh, um, or our final segment with Stephen Aiden, Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel of Americans United for Life. So. When Jim Minnery with another episode of Family Matters, and very blessed to have Stephen Aiden, the Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel of Americans United for Life, doing such wonderful things there. We are so blessed to have um, partnership with groups like Americans United for Life to give us um, the backing and the resources, uh, not financially, but to, to give us legal, the best legal minds in the country. And uh, we were talking about before the the, or during the break and before the break about uh, Laura Einstein in that case, it, it's fascinating to me uh, when we basically had um, the opportunity to, to discuss with Senator Fred Dyson, um, who was on the Judiciary Committee when they were uh, fighting our efforts to define what a medically necessary abortion was because we were saying the state shouldn't have to through Medicaid pay for elective abortions. And I remember very specifically talking to Fred, who's now a board member of ours and a good friend. Um, uh, hey, listen, why don't you ask Laura Einstein, the chief legal officer or whatever her title was, uh, what an elective abortion was, and then just be quiet see what she says. And uh, so he did, and we have it recorded, and we've used it multiple times. But I remember her kind of having this, uh, you know, pregnant, un <laughs> pregnant as it were, uh, pause um, that was just really uncomfortable, but was wonderful. Uh, and she said, you know, Senator Dyson, we've heard of the term elective abortion, but we don't know what that means. That's literally what she said. So it's like, you're the smartest <laughs> one in the room, apparently, yeah. on this issue of abortion, but you don't know what an elective abortion is? Because she knows if she would have said anything, then of course those aren't covered. So in, in their mindset, in the mindset of the um, the legal profession uh, uh, that's pro-abortion and those in the pro-abortion industry, every abortion is medically necessary. And we've seen that with during COVID-19 with some of these uh, uh, these clinics, you know, standing up against governments who are saying we're going to get we're going to stop elective procedures. And and according to Planned Parenthood, uh, uh, abortion is an essential services uh, or essential service compared to, you know, a knee operation or some some other procedure that would be very cumbersome for people to have to wait. But they are being made to wait, but not abortion. So what's your take on that in terms of? strategies about how do you counter when the other side says this is this is medically necessary period no ifs ands or buts jim you hit the nail on the head um if your listeners ever want to get an example of uh, diabolical reasoning this is it so this started back in the early 90s in california with the reproductive privacy act 
And it's a syllogism that proves, in their mind, that every abortion is medically necessary. And here's how it works. First, they buy into the false belief that abortion is safer than childbirth. That's not true. Uh, but that is the, uh, the falsity, uh, the fake news on which the Supreme Court decided the Roe case, one of the pretexts on which it decided the Roe case. They said, well, you know, abortion is safer than carrying a child to term. Carrying a child to term is risky, et cetera, et cetera. The truth is by mid-gestation, uh, abortion is actually about 35 times more dangerous uh, to the mother than carrying the child to term would be, and it gets uh, even more unsafe as you approach full gestation, but they will never tell you that. So first you have to swallow that uh, false belief that abortion is safer than childbirth. The second part says, well, if abortion is safer than childbirth, then any abortion eliminates the risk that a woman faces in carrying that child to term. So any abortion that eliminates that additional risk of carrying a child to term is a medically necessary abortion because it stops the risk to the mother that childbirth engenders. You see how diabolical that is. And it's based on just an absolute uh, stack of lies. But that's how they think. And that's what California said in 1994. I think it was the Reproductive Privacy Act. That's what New York said recently in passing its Reproductive Privacy Act. So that is the mindset of the abortion industry. They're helping women by offering abortion because every abortion is medically necessary. So that's how they approach the Medicaid question. So going back to what you were saying earlier about Medicaid, um, as an aside, there are, you know, if you study pro-life laws, the two kinds of laws that move the needle most in favor of saving lives are first stopping public funding of abortion that's huge yeah that's huge and second in terms of minors uh it is uh, parental notice nothing uh, affects the numbers more so yeah those are very important uh and uh it's, it's amazing how they think sometimes i just can't get over it well, and so that's – I guess that's the uh, the sense that we're going to have to provide. Uh, you know, the, there's going to be um, efforts undertaken uh, regarding this Supreme Court justice that we, we talked about, Susan Carney, who's up for retention, and wrote that piece or wrote the opinion that overturned the medically necessary um, law that was signed into law – that was signed into law, but um, – but ultimately, even then, um, you know, our, our friend Bob Vanderplatz in Iowa, who heads up the Iowa Family Leader and uh, does remarkable works uh, there, uh, had success a, a number of years ago, as you remember, with three Supreme Court justices in one fell swoop being taken off. The uh, out of were non-retained or unelected uh, based on what they did with same-sex marriage in in Iowa. So it was a different issue. But then there are some that say, well, yeah, that was a great thing that occurred. Uh, but then who was reappointed? And you look right back on uh, some of the same things that are happening and the same kind of makeup on the court. So. You know, it's not a silver bullet. Um, it's something like you said. If you, whatever it is that you can do that, that brings attention to the issue, you never know when 
someone's going to make a decision to choose life uh, based on a bumper sticker, based on a campaign to oust a Supreme Court justice. If the issue is being brought up, you have to just circulate it in the culture, in the um, in your community of influence, the, the issue, so that people at their time and place hopefully make the right decision. But in terms of an actual silver bullet, um, uh, you know, you, you see what happens in or it has happened uh, in Tennessee, in Louisiana, they're voting on this November. Uh, and in some circles, it, it is called the silver bullet, where they basically define or 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 um, change their constitution, the state constitution, to say that the um, the issue of abortion is not addressed. There's no penumbras. There's no um, hidden way for the courts to pull out that meaning. What is your take on that? I mean, we we have uh, introduced a, a similar bill up here um, and got some headway, and then of course things collapsed uh, during our legislative session with COVID-19. We didn't have the votes anyway. We have to get two thirds in our Senate and. House, uh, and then it goes to the people for that majority vote to amend our constitution. But we only have a couple minutes here, but I'd love to get your take on those state constitutions. I have been told by some that legally it has, in some places, Tennessee in particular, really solved the issue. In terms of legally, if they are able to pass something, the courts have their hands tied. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, I think it is. It's critically important that states pass these constitutional amendments. The irony, Jim, is that it takes a court to amend a constitution in favor of abortion. Uh, courts can go back the other way and say there's no, but you know, it's essentially a one-way ratchet. Once a Supreme Court of a state says there's a right to abortion in the constitution of the state, uh, then uh, what it takes is a movement of the people to amend the state constitution to clarify that, no, abortion's not in here. And that's what the folks did in Tennessee. And that has opened up the door to save the lives of uh, mothers and babies in the state of Tennessee through legislation. So it's a great thing. We wish them well. West Virginia did the same thing. And uh, we're looking forward to the vote in Louisiana. I expect it will be overwhelmingly in favor. Uh, we have a model uh, state uh, constitutional amendment in our work uh, Defending Life, which contains model bills to save lives. It's available on our website, aul.org. So anyone that is interested in that uh, can take a look at that or contact us if uh, they're interested in discussing that. Yeah, well, we, you know, it's a long shot uh, because two-thirds in the House looks a, a long way away, uh, looks a, a really long way away for us right now, but um, hope springs eternal, and we continue to try to advance the ball, um, lift up, uh, you know, lift up life because it's God-honoring, because it's the right thing to do, and what a pleasure it is to work with uh, partners like Americans United for Life. Folks, if you haven't gone to AUL, um, website. You just go to aul.org, and it's just a phenomenally well done website. Very easy to engage on, and just be blessed by it because there's great things happening. Of course, there's some some tough news that we're hearing now um, in different places in the country, but there's wonderful things happening, and a lot of that has to do with people like Stephen Aiden. So we we bless you, we thank you, um, Stephen, and uh, we will be in touch. You can count on that for sure. Thanks so much for being a part of our show today. Thanks, Jim. God bless you.